back, everybody. Don't give up ship podcast. We're on episode 11, and today we're going to be talking about Navy uniforms. Okay, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this was because coming up in the service as a junior enlisted sailor, I would constantly, like everybody, was always told, like maintain your uniform at a high level, shine your boots, iron your stuff, right? Get a haircut, get your hands out of your pockets. And, and I feel like everybody's like, why? Like, why should I do that? And increasingly with this generation, they're constantly asking why. And we're empowering them to ask why in certain scenarios. So I think it's important that we explain that why. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, first, what I want to do is just put a plug in for the Ask Diga segment. Uh, we still haven't gotten a ton, of, like a big influx of questions. But when we do, when we start getting those questions in there, we'll start addressing it on the show. Uh, and answering those questions, not just to you immediately on a one-on-one basis, but then also bringing them onto the podcast and sharing them with everybody else. To get a hold of us, you'll Facebook message us or hit us up at don'tgiveuptheshippodcast at gmail.com. So today, appropriately enough, I'm going to be talking about the history of the Navy uniform, and it's kind of a lot to get through, so I want to dive right into it. And it'll make sense why I'm going to spend so much time on this, because this is going to be a big part of that why that I was talking about when we first opened up. All right, so the history... Of the development of the naval uniform traces the uniforms through significant changes from 1776 to 1981. These changes are related to naval history in order that the reader can match uniform development with changes in the Navy itself. I got all of this from the Navy and History Heritage Command website. Uh, you just search uh, history of naval uniforms. So that's where this blurb is coming from. In any historical narrative of Navy uniforms, the dichotomy between officer and enlisted dress requires separate treatment of the evolutionary developments of these traditionally distinctive modes of dress. Officer and enlisted have historically been, for the most part, comprised of individuals from separate social, educational, and economic classes. Their garb has reflected these differences, as well as conforming to the type of duties each group was expected to perform. The following index separates uniform development into cognitive periods in which definite clothing prescriptions evolved as a result of distinct historical influences. So the first time period I'm going to talk about was the Revolutionary War. Naval uniforms under these parsimonious conditions were nondescript, consisting of pantaloons often tied at the knee or knee breeches, a jumper or shirt, neckerchief, short-waisted jacket, and low-crowned hats. These short trousers were practical so as not to interfere with a man's work in the rigging of his ship. Most sailors went barefoot. A kerchief or bandana was worn either as a sweatband or as a simple closure for the collar. Unfortunately, there are no records that support the persistent myth that the black kerchief represents a sing of mourning for Nelson's demise. The sailor's kerchief predates his death by hundreds of years and has evolved as a functional piece of garb. Nelsonian legends had nothing to do with accoutrements which developed out of necessity, rank identification, or fashion embellishments. The War of 1812, uh, the post-war years, saw a resurgence of interest in naval matters, and the government began to have more of an interest in its development. Not only had the Navy earned a fine reputation, but it was beginning to build a cadre of professionals, both officer and enlisted, who elected to remain in service. The positive feelings resulted in the first attempt at a prescribed uniform in 1817. Through government procurement, winter and summer uniforms were provided. The winter uniform consisted of a black jacket and trousers, red vest with yellow buttons and a black hat. As a result of wartime operations in tropical waters and spurred by the increased relations with South America, the formerly cold water Navy prescribed appropriate warm weather gear consisting of a white duck outfit with a black varnished hat. At this time, bell bottoms began to appear. There's no substantive factual reason for their adoption, i.e. easier to roll up or kick off in the water, but rather appear to be a tailored version of the pantaloon designed for a bit of flair which set the sailor apart from his civilian counterpart. However, as federal funding began to ebb, enlisted dress was rarely standardized or enforced, 
and sailors added their own accoutrements, such as buttons, striping, as they wished. Early uniform standardization, 1841 to the Civil War. The regulations of 1841 not only set forth the first description of an enlisted uniform, but also the first grooming regulations. The uniform was a blue woolen frock with white collars and cuffs, blue trousers, blue vests, black handkerchief and shoes. The collars and breasts of the frock coats were lined in blue. For the first time, commanding officers were required to ensure personnel had prescribed clothing. Grooming regulations for all hands specified that hair and beards must be kept short, except whiskers might descend to one inch below the ear and in line with the corners of the mouth, thus the basis for mutton-chop whiskers so prevalent in paintings of the period. The regulations of 1841 also provided another first for enlisted, a, a distinctive mark for petty officers. The device consisted of an eagle atop an anchor, which was a common theme in the early American maritime history, not more than three inches high with a star above the eagle. It also specified that the insignia was to be blue on a white uniform and white on blue uniforms. The eagle was probably chosen for several reasons. As a national symbol, the eagle first appeared on the national seal in 1782 and was displayed on officer buttons positioned over an anchor since 1802. It was prevalent design in army uniforms and was common insignia during the 1840s. Thus, it can be assumed that the frequent usage during the early years of the nation made the eagle the most logical choice in the Navy. Also, the use of the eagle on officer's buttons might have influenced its adoption on petty officer insignia, although there were no specialty marks, distinction of ratings being accomplished by delineating on which arm the device was to be worn, and it created the left arm or right arm ratings, which continued for over 100 years. It was an important step in distinguishing between petty officers and junior enlisted, thus enhancing and recognizing the career personnel among their superiors and superiors. The Civil War, as with officers' clothing, increased standardization in enlisted clothing and created the beginnings of rate and specialty distinction. The dramatic growth in the number of naval personnel and ships necessitated further distinctions in uniform appearance. In 1862, master-at-arms, yeomen, stewards, and paymaster-stewards, who were important and valuable leading petty officers, were authorized to wear the double-breasted officer-type coat. This move to clothe principal petty officers in a more authoritarian garment was the first step towards the identification of future chief petty officers. Other enlisted dress was standardized into style, which was representative of the jumper bell-bottom uniform. It was practical, easy to work in, resisted soilage, and provided protection against the elements. The jumper collar had changed from a roll collar to a flap and was standardized and extended to six and a half inches. This was probably to differentiate between the rolled collar of master and senior petty officer coats. When peace finally came, the Navy began to sort out its experiences and apply them to uniform development. The rapid growth of personnel showed that a system for rank identification was needed among all enlisteds. In regulations of 1866, specialty mark was adopted for petty officers and master-at-arms, quartermaster, coxswain, gunners, carpenters, captain of the forecastle, captain of the top and sailmaker ratings. White piping on the collar was standardized to distinguish petty officers, three rows, the landsmen and boys, one row. Corresponding rows were displayed on the cuffs. White stars were standardized on the collar. The collar was extended to nine inches to accommodate these additions and remained that size until 1973. The 1866 regulations allowed a white Senate straw hat in addition to the white cover, which was tied to the blue flat hat. It was found that the addition of the white cover did not provide coolness, but rather added the discomfort of the woolen hat in warm weather. This was the beginning of a distinct white hat, which would evolve through canvas and eventually the white cotton hat of recent times. 
To provide unit identification, which was so difficult in the myriad of sh the ships that were commissioned, a hat ribbon specified to be one and one quarter inches wide with the command's name and letters was prescribed. Commanding officers were required to ensure that all lettering was the same size on all hats. Standardization was also carried through in size dimensions of the white hat and the mandate that all blue fleet hats be worn in, worn in uniform shape and color. A sailor was becoming more than just a body to handle lines or scramble around the rigging. He was entering an age where a good level of education was needed to function in an increasingly complex navy. Thus, as he was becoming a technician in both mechanical and logistical areas, a revision of the uniform regulations in 1874 further modified the dress of principal petty officers to emulate that of commissioned officers. Senior petty officers of various ratings, now greatly increased from the previous directives, were authorized to wear the sack coat with the rating insignia on both sleeves. In 1885, the first separation occurred among petty officers into principal, first, second, and third class. The regulations of 1886 provided a set of rating badges for each group. First class had three red downward-pointing chevrons in the manner of the Royal Navy, topped by an eagle with a specialty mark imposed on a red lozenge between the chevrons and the eagle. Principal petty officers wore the same, except an arch was added over the top of the chevron, the same basic design as chief petty officers today. Second class had the same three chevrons as the first class, but without the lozenge. And the third class had two chevrons and no lozenge. Also in 1886, principal petty officers were directed to wear double-breasted blue coats and a white sack coat in the summer. Visored hats were to be worn. Other petty officers continued to wear the jumper and bell bottoms. The pea coat, as we knew it, came into use about the time of the foul weather wear. It was warm and its shortness made it more practical for movement than the great coat. The white sailor hat appeared during this time as a low rolled brim high-domed item made of canvas to replace the white senate straw hat the canvas hat was easier to wear could be washed and thus presented a neater appearance by being built of wedges it was easy and cheap to construct and its distinctive shape differentiated the american sailor from that period on this differentiation between principal and regular petty officers of the first class rate came in the regulations of 1894 when the rank of chief petty officer was established. This new rate utilized the former principal petty officer badge with the three red chevrons joined by the arch at the top and spread eagle above. The other devices were reorganized corresponding exactly to present day classifications. With the new modern navy, length of service was considered a source of pride among sailors and service stripes were introduced during this year, being similar to the army in concept but distinctly nautical in appearance. They have remained basically unchanged to this day. Since 1886, principal petty officers and then chief petty officers wore a bronze disc on their caps comprised of a spread eagle perched on a horizontal anchor. Since officers wore the same coats and utilized black braid rather than gold, there was much confusion. Therefore, a need arose to provide a distinctive cap device for chief petty officers, which would not utilize the eagle, which was considered the symbol of officer rank. 1897 saw the incorporation of a chief's cap device similar to the present design, a gilt-fouled anchor with USN superimposed in silver. As the fleet increased its steaming time, a more suitable work garment was needed. Although white had been worn since 1869, sailing in tropical waters precluded the luxury of frequent laundering as a waste of precious water. Thus, the regulations in 1901 authorized the first use of denim jumpers and trousers to be utilized as a working uniform in areas which would normally soil blue or white uniforms. The 1913 regulations permitted the dungaree outfit to be used by both officers and enlisted men as a complete outfit replete with the hat of the day. In general, its use was limited to submarine, engine room, gun turret, and machinery space personnel. During the World Wars, the mobilization of 1917 for the impending war brought about new element in enlisted uniforms, women. 
Females were organized into reserve groups and a uniform which paralleled civilian fashion was designed. It is interesting to note that while the male enlisted uniforms was distinctly nautical and evolved in relation to maritime needs, female enlisted clothing more closely followed civilian trends. The first enlisted women's uniform was a single-breasted coat, blue in winter and white in summer, long gold-bottomed skirts and straight-brimmed sailor hat, blue felt in the winter and white straw for the warm weather. Black shoes with stockings were worn with summer whites. Rating badges were the same as male yeomen. Some pictures of the period show the neckerchief being utilized to provide some identity with the men. Uh, and it was not until the advent of World War II that a new wave uniform was designed and continues to the present day. Details of this uniform are the same as for women officers and are defined in the subsequent officers section. And that's where I'm going to stop the actual just bludgeoning of you with this history segment. And the reason I wanted to get through all that, and I read it kind of fast to cut down on a little bit of time, so hopefully it wasn't too terrible. But I wanted to do all that because there's so much about uniforms and their evolution that we don't know. And we're never taught it, really, unless we go out of our way to research the topic all on our own. And then again, the reason why it's important that you even know any of it in the first place is so that you can find your why. And so I'm going to talk about is the United States sailor's uniform is iconic for a reason, all right? The manner in which you wear it represents a country, an organization, so our Navy, right? And it's 240 years of history, heritage, and tradition. And it's extremely important to me that junior sailors understand why it's important to maintain your uniform at a high level, and not just because it's required of you, but in order to set themselves up for success while honoring those people that came before them, that 240 years of history. And so we hear it from our very first day, and I, and I mentioned it when we came in, like from, from the time we were in P days in our Smurfs, you know, itching up from that ridiculous haircut we just got, get a haircut, keep your boots shine, get your hands out of your pockets, right? But why? Like, and, and I, I'm going to keep hitting this and hitting this and hitting this. Why is it important? Why should you care? What's allowed and what's not? Uh, we're going to tackle all these things and hopefully give you some new perspective on why it's important, and I think it's an issue that we're not taking as seriously as we should out in the fleet. Just like the last topic when we talked about evaluations, I'm going to start at the baseline. I'm going to start at the reference, right? So U.S. Navy Uniform Regulations. It's NAVPERS 15665 uh, Indigo. So that's the current revision. You can find that on the Navy Personnel Command website. Uh, if you Google it, that'll be the first result. Google U.S. Navy Uniform Regulations, and the first thing that's going to pop up is the link to the NPC website. All right, so start here. I'm going to disclaim this, though. The current iteration of the uniform regs is sorely in need of updating, like really badly. And if you go to the Navy History and Heritage Command website, they have copies of the all the old regulations. Okay, They have copies of some of the stuff I was just talking about in the history segment. And some of the drawings from the 1800s are better than the illustrations that we have today, as ridiculous as that sounds. One of the examples I can give you for my Naval Military Training Staff is we were digging into how you wear an agulet or, or a cord, right? Uh, we were looking it up, and the illustrations are awful. And we're just like, how do you wear this? What's it supposed to look like, etc.? And it's very difficult to glean that from the uniform regulations because the illustrations are god-awful. And if you look at some of the watercolor painting style or like almost like colored pencil drawings they have in the, in the old versions, they're really vivid and they're really detailed. Uh, and you can tell exactly what they intended. So I'm going to disclaim it in that it's the uniform regulations are not perfect. There's clarification needed, uh, more information to be added. They need new and better pictures and illustrations, and there's instructions missing. However... You should be intimately familiar with the portions that pertain to you, and I would encourage you to become extremely well-versed on the other sections as well, the ones that don't pertain to you. Just knowledge is power. Be informed, okay? The more you know, the more you can help yourself, you can train others, uh, and help maintain the standards out in the fleet. 
So amplifying instructions, because the uniform regulations is not all-encompassing, uh, sometimes there are other instructions that come out in the form of nav admins uh, governing uniform policy. So new updates like the tattoo policy that just came out or the new dress whites and the female uniform changes that they're talking about, they come out via, via naval message and the, and the clarification and guidelines and due dates and everything are going to be in those nav admins and they're not always going to immediately be updated in uniform regulations. So be informed. Go to the Navy Personnel Command website under reference library and search the nav admins for the most recent guidance regarding whatever policy you need information on. Also, when in doubt, just ask, all right? And we say that almost every week, just ask. Ask your mentor or your leadership to clarify something for you. And clarify it before you do it. Don't go do something stupid, all right? Don't go dye your hair red or, you know, shave a lightning bolt inside your head or do something crazy without talking to your chief first and then saying, well, it's not specifically listed that I can't have a lightning bolt shaved inside of my head in the uniform regs. It's not going to end well for you, all right? Don't be that person. Uh, like, I, I'm just, please, just... Don't be that person. The last thing, and when we're talking about the actual regulations on paper, the last thing I'm going to point at, and I feel like this is something that almost no one knows about, because every time I bring it up, people look at me like I'm crazy. The Uniform Matters Office. All right, uh, Any instruction in existence cannot possibly capture every single eventuality, Okay, especially as styles and trends evolve. Uh, and as a result, the instructions will, in some cases, be intentionally vague by saying things like uh, including but not limited to, okay, and just like I was talking about before, like the lightning bolt thing, it's not going to be listed, okay, but don't be an idiot. And then they've got things in there where it's intentionally vague, but that's where it would fall in between. And when we're talking about interpreting stuff like faddish, I'm going to be the one interpreting it, not you. So make sure you're asking questions, all right? But when in doubt, ask, and then there is a final outlet when you can't get a good answer, right? If, if you want clarification on something with Navy uniforms and no one can seem to answer your question and it, with any kind of authority or certainty, email the Uniform Matters Office. When you go to MPC and you go to the Uniform Matters Office page, there's a link that says, Ask the Master Chief. That link is an email link to the Uniform Matters Office Command Master Chief, okay? And the, the email address is umo underscore cmc at navy.mil. You can send an email to the UMO CMC and ask a question. Say, this is my scenario. Uh, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I had a question about. I'm being told this, and I think the uniform reg says that. Whatever the case may be, they, they exist to clarify these things for you guys. So you can shoot them an email. I've attached pictures to the emails before uh, and gotten feedback or clarification and they're, and they're kind of the final say like uniform matters office are the people that write the regs so they're going to tell you how it was intended not how you interpret it because they wrote it and and that's that's kind of the final judgment i guess uh, so take advantage of that tool if you've got questions and you're not getting the kind of answer that you want or need give them a shout so now i'm going to talk about we're going to get into the why okay so we started with a baseline be informed understand what what this is all about uh, and, and what you're on the hook for, okay? So the first thing I want to talk about is first impressions, right? So this, I mean, this is very basic. This is something I'm sure your, your parents or someone important in your life has told you before that you're going to be judged by your outward appearance. So being prepared in that manner is important. In the military, we do a lot of judging by outward appearance, especially in your uniform, right? It's a fact of life. Um, might not be fair, but it's reality. So recognizing this as early as you possibly can can have profound effects on your career. Early on, it'll have big impacts on your evaluations, your awards, which all affect your advancement. These will snowball in, in hugely positive ways if you're doing it the right way, and it will affect your advancement and professional development. So that's something that if you're not aware of, you you should be. We're looking at that. And, and at the level that you're at now, especially 
Think about like a big platform where, you know, I'm chief and I'm in the office and I got 100 sailors working for me, 200 sailors working for me. What's going to make you stand out when you're standing at quarters? What's going to make you stand out from the crowd? Well, if you look around the ship, the vast majority, and I'm just, I'm, this is reality. The vast majority of people are not maintaining their uniform at a high level. They might be meeting the standard, right? And then you've got some dirtbags out there too, but not a lot of people are going out of their way to maintain their uniform at a high level. And you're, you'll hear a myriad of excuses, right? Like, oh, I work for a living chief and all that other crap, which is exactly that. It's crap. There are situations where, yeah, we all get dirty. We all, you know, ha our uniform can degenerate into a hot mess because of the work we're doing. But you can have stuff standing by. There's there's a way around everything. There's a solution for everything, right? But you're going to be judged. So how are, they, how are you going to stand out when you're in that crowd at quarters? Maintain your uniform at a high level. Uh, the first impression... So like for, for me, being honest, as a chief, my outward appearance will directly reflect how seriously you take me. It will. Think, think about it. I can be the village freaking idiot, but if I'm super squared away in my uniform, I got a fresh haircut, and my boots are shined up like mirrors, at least initially, you're going to take me seriously. You are. You're going to look at this guy and be like, man, this guy's got it together, right? Until I open my mouth and demonstrate otherwise. Uh, conversely, I could be the sharpest technical expert there is, uh, but if I look like I slept in my uniform and I need a haircut and I didn't shave, I'm fighting an uphill battle just to shift your attention from your subconscious judging of my negative appearance to what's coming out of my mouth, which is important. So be aware of that. It's going to become an obstacle for you to be taken seriously, to get to where you want to be, and to communicate your point, especially when you're right, if your outward appearance is a distractor for the person that you're trying to communicate with. History and heritage, okay? So why you should care. This is what I was talking about at the beginning, like finding the why in this. Because I can tell you all this about policy and, you know, the outward appearance. And that's what you need to do to be taken seriously. And even that it can affect your advancement, which most people are pretty, that's when they start listening, when we're talking about money, right? But why you should care, it's like, I'm not going to go back through all the details that we covered in the history segment, okay? But I'm going to talk about why you should care in that any time I've ever advocated for squaring away a uniform, shining your, shining your boots, or, or whatever, it was for reasons like it will help you to be taken seriously, it will help you to get good evals, and, and on and on and on. And all those things are true, but as a junior sailor, I feel like you need more, right? I, why should you actually take the time? Why should you sustain this over a long period of time? Uh, history and heritage are my answer to that. History and heritage are my answer to that question. Those that come before you, that, that's the why. All right, There are countless stories. Countless stories. Find yours. Make it specific to your rate or your warfare community or whatever stirs you. Okay, But this is important because you carry the responsibility to honor those stories by res and respect the uniform that you're wearing because it's their uniform. By caring for it and by displaying the image of a sailor with respect and dignity that it merits, it's that's how you respect them. That's how you carry on their legacy. I carry Dory Miller, Leonard Harmon, William Pinckney, Peter Tomich, and so many others with me, and that's my why. When I get up in the morning, e even mentors that I've had, even, even Command Master Chief Eric Antoine, who built me from the ground up and who made me the chief that I am, that's how I respect him. That's how I show my pride in being a chief and, and being the chief that he made it is and kind of like almost thanking him. Like I, I have my uniform and I take a lot of time and pride in preparing it. And just the moment pinning my anchors onto my uniform every morning, like it never gets old. And it, I never 
take that lightly. I never just throw it together. I never throw my uniform on in a manner that is going to bring any kind of shame to it because it's too important. It's too important that you take that seriously. There are too many chiefs out there that have done unbelievable things to advance the Navy, to save lives, just anything to accomplish the mission. And for me to not take that seriously as a chief, like I'm part of something bigger than myself. And when I pull that uniform on voluntarily, no one makes me do it. And we've talked about this before. You got to take that seriously. And so when we talk about your why, that's why. Like you're pulling on a uniform where there's just 240 years of history that came before you. And go find the stories that inspire you. Go find the ones that make this important to you. But be aware that there are hundreds of thousands of stories you will never hear about that are equally important. That they put in the work every day to build a foundation and, and, and move the Navy forward so that you could be a part of it. So that you could be doing what you're doing right now. And it, when it sucks, and it will, and when it's hard, and when the last thing you want to do when you get off is prepare your uniform for the next day, it's too important to screw up. It's too important to not take seriously. And it all intertwines where you know the first time you, you come in and your uniform looks like crap and you're not taking it seriously, that's incredibly difficult to recover from. Like this can't be like once a week or only at uniform inspections or whenever you have time or you feel like it. This is something that you need to do consistently because that's the only way that I'm gonna see that you take it seriously. And that's the only way that I'm gonna take you seriously. And when you show me that it's a big deal to you as a leader, think about junior level leadership here. When you're showing me that it's important to you, it's gonna become important to me. It's going to be something that I'm like, well, it's important to my leader. They're consistent about it. They've demonstrated to me with that consistency that this is something that is important to them. So now it's going to become important to me. And they're leading by example and showing me that that's the way that you do it, right? And so find your why, do the research, whatever it is, and use that. And it doesn't have to be history and heritage, even though that's the primary thing that I'm talking about here today. Like That's what I use and that's what I preach to the junior sailors that I train and that I have that work for me. And it's worked. I've seen it work for me. I've seen it inspire them to continue long after they leave my A school. And and then they see the tangible results that I talked about at the beginning through awards, advancement, and recognition, and and just being put into positions of increased authority because they're not dumb, right? They're they're, uh, on top of having that squared away uniform. They're also very intelligent sailors. And by being taken seriously and by them being judged by that outward appearance and being shown to be very squared away, and then also that it like creates a, um, a platform for them to be heard and then, oh, and they're hardworking and very intelligent, so they get put in, in other positions that some people don't, right? Take it seriously for those reasons. Take it seriously for whatever reasons you have. I ask junior sailors all the time, like, why'd you join the military? Uh, and a lot of the answers are to you know make my parents proud or to get out of a bad situation or whatever it is. That's motivation too. That's the same type of motivation that will propel you to do this consistently and on a regular basis because you're here voluntarily and and I'll I'll always go back to that because the argument I get from junior sailors is you know well I'm out of here this sucks this is crap this isn't what I signed up for it's too hard I'm stressed whatever it is right I'm not saying those things are unimportant but they're not relevant excuses to not do this they're not relevant excuses to clock out take your ball and go home and not perform at a high level or maintain your uniform or fulfill your responsibilities your responsibilities you signed up to do this and that's why it's so important and 
by my saying that, like, it's your responsibility, I don't want it to be heard as, well, you have to do this because Chief said so, because that doesn't motivate you to continue to do it. That's why I'm trying to, I'm, I'm imploring you to go find your why, whatever it is, find out about the history. And hopefully that inspires you. That inspires me. That's the reason why I do it. And it's recent history, naval history that I find on the internet as I do my research and read books. Whatever the case is, find your why, all right? And understand that this is not something that you should be taking lightly. And by doing that, by understanding that, I feel like you'll you'll it'll start to click for you. It's not just about following a rule in some reference, okay? It's about a lot more than that. It's summary time. I, I'm not going to care because I was, I was about to run on forever just kind of saying the same thing over and over again. We talked about the policy behind the uniform. Be informed. It's important that you understand what the, what you need to be doing. Okay, I, I, I'm sitting here talking at you, telling you about this responsibility and how important it is, but understand what it is. What what are you on the hook for? What do you have to do? How is how do you maintain your uniform in the correct way? Why do you do it? And you can get a lot of that from the uniform regulations and the other references. Uh, and then ask questions if you have them. All right, ask questions. Uh, if not, the people locally to you, hit me up and I'll, and I'll help you through it. What we talked about why the first impression is so important and how it's interpreted, and it is by the people that you're leading, by your peers, and then by your leadership, and even by you know the people that you represent the Navy to out in the general public when you're wearing that Navy uniform, either to and from work or at functions or whatever the case may be. And then we talked about the history and heritage behind the uniform, not just when I droned on through that really long history segment, but the why of it all. Why is it important, okay? Uh, and junior sailors need to understand why it is important to maintain your uniform at a high level, not just that it's required, not just because Chief said so, but the why of it all, uh, in order to set themselves up for success while honoring those that came before them, okay? And, and I'm really passionate about this if it hasn't come through, not just because I'm an OCD uniform stickler, which I am, um, but it because it's important, all right? There's a responsibility that comes along with pulling this uniform out every day, all right? It's not an accident that they stitch U.S. Navy on it next to your name because you are a part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, it's a reminder of the weight you carry with you, of what you represent to the American public, to the world, of the tradition that you're carrying on. Uh, you're, you're wearing the uniform of, of Dory Miller, of Michael Murphy, of Chester Nimitz, and of Peter Thomas. Take that seriously. You're not just punching a clock at, at a nine-to-five and that's a conscious, voluntary decision you made to be part of this organization. Like, no one made you do it, all right? So honor that decision uh, for as long as you do it, whether it's two or three or four years or 30. And if you're planning on leaving because this is too much to ask, all right, then just do it until you do. Just honor the organization that you voluntarily joined and are a part of until you move on. And that's why they call it honorable service. Do that. Take the time to honor it. And and those that came before you and, and the stories of the sacrifices they made for the organization and for the country and for the, the sailor right next to them so that it continues, so that that legacy is honored and it continues. Uh, you owe the Navy that based on the commitment that you made, whether you like it or not, right? It, it, that's reality. To close it out, like I always say, if you got any questions about any of this stuff or you want to just engage in a dialogue, ask questions, suggest stuff for for future episodes tell me i'm an idiot whatever it is get a hold of us you can facebook message us on the facebook page or you can email us at don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com you know hit us up we're always open uh to any kind of dialogue on anything um suggestions whatever it is 
thank you guys so much for listening. I know that was probably kind of one long run-on sentence. I know that history segment was probably rough, but I felt like it was really important. Uh, I, I, I thought about abbre- abbreviating it, but I thought it was really important to cover all that material because if, if I don't and no one else does, uh, where are you going to get it from? And I encourage you to do your own research and kind of check out the resources at the History and Heritage Command website. There's a lot of really incredible information there. Um, that may not just give you more information on it, but it might help you find that why. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, I promise it won't be as boring next week. Uh, Until next time, thank you for listening, and don't give up the shit.